John 12 is our passage, verse 1 to verse 8. Throughout this study of the Gospel of John, our north star that has guided us week in and week out is John 20, verse 30 and 31, and it says this. I'll put it up on the screen. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus performed many signs. John wrote these signs and these stories that we would be people who believe. And we've talked about in the Gospel of John, believing is always a verb. It's never used as faith, but it's always used as believe, something we do, something that requires action. John wants us to believe Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew title Messiah. He wants us to believe that he's the Son of God. And John says when we believe those things, we have life in Jesus' name. And what we're going to see this morning is that the reason we can have life is that Jesus died. We can have life by believing in Jesus' name because Jesus died. So let's talk about the context of John 12. The events of John 12, 1 to 8, took place six days before the Passover. We get that from verse 1. We'll read it in just a minute. This was the Saturday before the triumphal entry. And so timelines help me with context. I I like to be able to see it visually, and so I'm going to put up a timeline uh, on the screen to give you an idea of what we're talking about. On Friday, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. On Saturday, he has dinner with Lazarus in his family. This was the Sabbath, so they probably had dinner after the sun went down that evening. They meet together in a home of a man named Simon. On Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. We call that the triumphal entry. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Jesus spends time in the temple. He's teaching. He goes to the temple, and he clears the temple. He, he runs the money changers out, I believe, for the second time. And then as he leaves Jerusalem, Somewhere in this window of time, he gives what Bible scholars call the Olivet Discourse. And you don't find that in John, but you find it in Matthew and in Luke. On Thursday, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He's arrested, he's tried. On Friday, he is crucified and he's buried. And I mention all of those things and I lay it out on the timeline so you understand we are a week away from the end of Jesus' life. We're a week away from the cross. There's a couple of things I want you to understand before we read John 12 specific to this passage. One, in first century Jewish life, spices and perfume were used to prepare bodies for burial. And we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but without being too crude, I basically just want you to understand they used the spices and the perfume and all of this stuff to cover up the smell of a decomposing body. They didn't practice embalming. They buried almost immediately. They're just trying to cover up the smell. You see this when Jesus is taken off the cross and put in a tomb, they wrap him with 75 pounds of spices. That's what's happening here. Another thing I want you to understand relates to what we call the synoptic gospels. Synoptic is a a mashup word that means seeing together. 
The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They see the story of Jesus together. They tell the story of Jesus in a similar way. They see it differently than John does. It's not two different stories, but they write it and they tell the story from two different perspectives. When you read the synoptic gospels, you find in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 7, that they all tell a story that sounds very similar to the story that we're going to look at this morning. Right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a story. When you first read it, you say, oh, that's the same story. Now, what's interesting is Bible scholars disagree here. They argue about whether or not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all telling the same story or whether they're telling different stories that are similar in nature. And so I'll let you dig into the, the passages, compare the details, and you can draw your own conclusion. I'm just going to tell you my opinion Matthew and Mark are telling the same story that John is telling. Luke is telling a different story. It's similar. Similar things happen, but the details are different enough that I think it's a different story. And I read them this week, and I read the arguments, and I came to that conclusion. And then I had a a bit of an epiphany. I said, hey, we went through the Gospel of Luke not too long ago here at Emmanuel, And I thought, I wonder what I said when we came to that passage in Luke. I wonder if I I have changed my mind or if I had the same opinion. So November 30th, 2014, that seems like an awful long time ago, we looked at this story or this similar story in the Gospel of Luke. And I told you on that Sunday, Luke is telling a different story than Matthew and Mark and John. And so you can look at those. You You can wade into the debate if it interests you. All the textual debates aside, here's the big idea of our passage. Jesus is the Passover lamb who came to die for his people. He's the Passover lamb who came to die for his people. We've seen this idea running throughout the Gospel of John. We saw it early in John when John the Baptist spoke up and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. We talked about the imagery there is Day of Atonement. But the imagery is also Passover, that a lamb would be sacrificed so that death could pass over us. That goes right back to the big idea of John. We can have life by believing in Jesus' name because he died for us. So look at your Bible. Let's just read these verses, and then we're going to pray. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we're thankful for an opportunity to worship. 
an opportunity to gather together as your people, even as we're scattered. Uh, We're thankful for this sense of togetherness, singing together, praying together, studying together. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives this morning as we think about this short, beautiful story. Father, give us insight into what it means to be a disciple. Help us to think your thoughts. Father, we pray it all in your name. Amen. I want you to take just a minute and think about this dinner party. I don't know the last time you went to a dinner party. I don't know maybe the best dinner party you've ever been to in your life. Maybe you have memories of that. But I just want you to think about this particular dinner party in Bethany. Matthew and Mark, assuming they're talking about the same story, tell us that the dinner party was held in the house of a man named Simon the leper. Presumably, he's not a leper at the time of the dinner party. Otherwise, he would be sort of practicing social distancing, as you might call it. So presumably, Jesus has healed this man at some point in time. We know lots of stories of Jesus healing people, and so we assume that Simon was probably one of those whom Jesus healed. I imagine at this dinner party, this may be speculation, but I imagine Simon told the story, don't you think? This is how I got leprosy. This is what my life was like when I had leprosy. This is how my path crossed with Jesus. And this is how Jesus healed me. And you'd love to know how it happened. Sometimes Jesus healed lepers with a touch. Sometimes Jesus healed lepers with a spoken word. Sometimes Jesus healed lepers by sending them to bathe or dip in water. And so I imagine that Lazarus, or Simon rather, told this story. Also at the party was Lazarus. Lazarus was there, and I imagine that as Simon the host is sharing his story, Lazarus speaks up as well. And so all those books that you can buy at the Christian bookstore about people dying and coming back to life, they're all just a bunch of phony baloney gobbledygook. You can just throw them all away. This was the real deal. This was the guy who actually had died, and Jesus actually brought him back four days later. And I can't help but think Lazarus shared that story. And he told details about what it was like to be sick and what it was like to experience death and what it was like in between and what happened afterwards and what it was like to literally walk out of the tomb. He's more than likely sharing his story. And as people start talking and sharing stories, the disciples are there. You know Peter pipes in at some point. Peter was not going to be outdone by anybody sharing stories, and I don't know what sort of stories Peter told, but I'm quite certain that he told some. Maybe he told about Jesus helping him catch fish. Maybe he told about Jesus healing his mother-in-law, but Peter is probably chiming in. Martha is there. Martha is serving, and do you notice what's different about her service here? She's not complaining. There's absolutely no indication that Mary is helping But she's not complaining. She's not whining about it. She's just serving. She's found her her element. She's staying in her lane. She loves to serve, and she's doing it. She's doing it joyfully. You think about this scene, what it would have been like to be at this party. The word that kept coming back to mind is the word delightful. I just think it would have been so delightful to sit at this party and to listen to Simon, to listen to Lazarus, to laugh with Peter, to eat Martha's food. All of those things would have been remarkable to see, to experience, to partake of. Those really aren't the things that John focuses on in the story. 
He doesn't really emphasize all of those particular things that may interest us. Instead, what John does is he focuses on two characters. It's not Simon. It's not Lazarus. It's not Peter. Really, not even Jesus so much. The two characters that are focused on in this passage are Mary and Judas. And there's a contrast between these two. And the contrast is how they respond to Jesus. And as you read this short story and you think about the contrast in these two characters, there's lessons to be learned about discipleship. John is teaching us important lessons about discipleship through the contrasting examples of Mary and Judas. And I just want you to see some of the contrast and think about some of these lessons about discipleship. So here's the first lesson. In order to understand spiritual truths, you must listen to Jesus. If you want to be a person who understands spiritual truth, not just spiritual things, but spiritual truth, real things, you've got to be somebody who listens to Jesus. If you read through the Gospels side by side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things you learn is that at the end of Jesus' life, right up here at the end, he has been telling the disciples that he's about to be arrested, that he's going to be killed, and that he's going to rise from the dead. I just want to show you one example of this. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. If you keep reading in Mark, you come to chapter 9, Jesus says all of that stuff again. And if you keep reading in Mark, you come to chapter 10, Jesus says all of that stuff yet again. Three clear statements of Jesus looking the disciples in the eye and he says to them, I'm going to be arrested. They're going to murder me. I'm going to be buried and I'm going to come back to life. What's also clear when you read through the gospels is that the disciples have absolutely no clue what's happening. They just don't get it. They're just bumbling and stumbling through these last days of Jesus' life. They don't really understand the significance and the specifics of what's going on. And yet, as we read this story in the Gospel of John and in Matthew and Mark, it's pretty clear that Mary knew. She understood what was happening. She understood what was going on on these last days of Jesus' life. Matthew and Mark specifically say that she anointed Jesus for his burial. John says at the end, speaking for Jesus, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Apparently she's trying to collect some of this ointment again after it's run off of his head and off of his feet. She's going to use it for his burial. And you just sort of wonder, how did the disciples not get it and Mary got it? And the only clue I can give you from the Bible is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, that says this. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. You remember the rest of that story. Martha gets mad because Mary's not helping. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things. 
Mary has chosen what's better, and it will not be taken from her. Sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. It's a unique thing, not said about many other people in the New Testament. She just stopped in the midst of the busyness to listen to Jesus. Look, if there's a danger that you and I are facing today and tomorrow and this next week, and they might increase the restrictions, they might decrease the restrictions, but we're all at home and we're all stuck with our screens, there's a danger that we don't listen to Jesus. There's a danger that we spend the next few weeks listening to Fox or CNN or whatever your cable news flavor happens to be. There's a danger that we spend the next few weeks listening to Facebook or social media or Twitter or Instagram. Uh, There's a danger that we listen to Netflix uh, in the latest streaming series or Amazon Prime or whatever it may be, and that we waste this opportunity to stop and to listen to Jesus. In this time of shutdown, make sure that you listen to Jesus. And beyond this shutdown, if you want to be someone who understands spiritual things, make sure that you're someone who listens to Jesus. How do we do that? Quite simply, we read the Bible. We read the red letters in the Bible because they're the words that Jesus spoke and we read all of the other black letters because when Jesus spoke he said all of the rest of them were true they were God's words so we read the Bible we listen to Jesus secondly your perspective on life will either be shaped by sin or faith the way that you look at life the way that you interpret your circumstances the way that you think about your situation is going to be shaped by one of two things either by sin or by faith think about mary for a second mary walks into this dinner party she has one thing on her mind mary wants to show how thankful she is to jesus for all that he's done in her life and in her family's life That's her aim. That's her goal coming into this dinner. And what she comes up with is, I'm going to take this ointment, this perfume. Matthew and Mark say that she breaks it on Jesus' head. John emphasizes the fact that she pours it on his feet. We'll talk about that in a minute. She anoints Jesus with this perfume, right? Let's be really clear. This perfume that Mary is using in this story is not the kind of stuff that you go down to Bath and Body Works and buy on the sale rack five bottles for 20 bucks. This is not the kind of stuff you go to Dillard's or Macy's or your favorite nice department store and you go to the perfume counter and you say, give me your most expensive bottle of whatever you're selling. It's not that kind of stuff. It's certainly not the kind of stuff, if you've ever gone to youth camp, you know middle school boys bring a suitcase full of Axe body spray, they don't take a shower all week, and they cover up with Axe body spray. Kind of the same idea as covering up the smell of decomposition, covering up the smell of middle school boys, but that's not the kind of stuff we're talking about either. There's some interesting stuff you can read when John says she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. That last part of that phrase, pure nard, more than likely refers to a type of ointment that was imported from India. And when Judas pipes up and says we could have sold it for 300 denarii, nobody says, no, 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 that's the clearance bin at bed 
Bath and Body Works or whatever it's called. That's the cheap Axe body spray stuff. They know what it is. It's worth 300 denarii. That's the equivalent of a year's salary for a working person in this day and time. It's worth a year of your blood, sweat, and tears. It is extremely rare. It's extremely expensive. And Mary, wanting to show her love for Jesus, wanting to show her devotion to Jesus, wanting to worship Jesus, gives it to Jesus and anoints him. What does Judas do? Judas looks at Mary and what she's done, and he essentially calls it wasteful. Mary is trying to show devotion and love. Judas looks at the same act, and he says, that was a waste. How did he get there when Mary was viewing that act as worship? How did Judas end up viewing it as a waste? Well, John tells you, if you've been reading through the gospel and in this passage, that Judas had made the decision that money was more important than Jesus. That's how he lived. Money is the most important thing. It's more important than Jesus. If you look at verse 6, John lets us in on a secret. He says, look, Judas did not care about the poor. That's kind of how he phrased it, to save face when he brought up the idea of waste. But he did not care about the poor. In fact, John says he was in charge of the money bag and he used to steal from the money bag. If you've worked your way through the Gospel of John in John 6 verse 71 Back when Jesus is feeding a multitude of people with bread and with fish, Judas pipes up at the end of that story and and enters the discussion. And Jesus refers to Judas saying, one of you is a devil who will betray me. Jesus knew that Judas was a thief. He knew that Judas never loved him more than money, that money was always his little g God. His first words are in John 12 right here, and they're a complaint. What a sad thing. The first time you speak up in the story of Jesus' life, it's to complain and to really expose your greed, although you're trying to cover it with generosity. If you keep reading in this story, Judas ends up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was the equivalent of about 120 denarii, less than half of what Mary gladly and joyfully gives to Jesus in this story. Mary approaches with faith. She's eager to worship. Judas approaches having given himself over to greed and avarice. And he views an act of worship as wastefulness. And the lesson for you and I is that the way we interpret life, the way we think about people and situations and all sorts of different things, our perspective on life is either going to be shaped by sin or by faith. If you give yourself over to unrepentant sin, you will inevitably end up calling good evil and evil good. You'll get it all backwards, just like Judas. If, however, your faith is in Jesus, your perspective over time will begin to conform to what is true and what is right. So your perspective on life will be shaped by sin or faith. Number three, the life of a disciple ought to be marked by humble worship. Humble worship. I want to give you a quote from Edward Clink. He's a Bible scholar. He says this, 
the act of anointing a person in the ancient world was intended to set them apart in regard to their particular office or role and to establish them with honor and praise. That's what Mary is trying to do. She's trying to acknowledge Jesus in who he is and what he came to do and to give him honor and to give him praise. Matthew and Mark say she anointed him on his head. John says she anointed him on his feet. And in all of the Gospels together, this act is connected with Jesus' burial. It's an anointing for his burial. Everything in this story highlights Mary's humility and her selflessness. John tells us she's anointing his feet. She doesn't presume to anoint his head. John focuses on the fact that she's anointing his feet. Jewish women would typically, social norms, have kept their hair up. Her hair is down and she's wiping this oil off of Jesus' feet, possibly collecting it back in the jar. Everyone's telling stories. Martha's fixing dinner. Everyone's laughing and having a good time. It's a delightful party. All Mary's focused on is worship. That's the mark of a true disciple, humble worship. You'll hear lots of people today say, this is what it really means to be a Christian. Some people will tell you, really being a follower of Jesus today means you're going to vote for this party or for that party, and there are people who disagree on which party you ought to vote for in order for you to, quote-unquote, be a real Christian. Some people will tell you, if you're a true Christian, you'll associate with these people, and you will not associate with these people. There's all sorts of ideas about what does it mean to be a true follower of Jesus. I'm telling you, this is a certain and true mark of discipleship. Humble worship. Humble worship. She comes, she anoints his feet, she wipes the oil off his feet with her hair. She is not one bit concerned what anyone else in the room thinks about her or what she's doing. She's not deterred by Judas one bit. This is a woman committed to humble worship. One last mark. Discipleship begins with faith in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. That's the entry point for true discipleship, is having faith in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And I understand that on the surface, these verses don't mention the cross, but really, if you pay attention, everything in this story is about the cross. And I told you it's about Mary and Judas, and that's true, but everything in this story is moving us forward to the cross. So just look in the text, look in your Bible, John 12, verse 1. John says it's six days before the Passover. John could have said a number of things right there. He could have said it's this many days before Jesus was arrested and tried. He could have said it's this many days before he's hung on the cross. It's this many days before they put him in the tomb. But he's making a theological point. It's not just a a point of chronology. It's a point of theology. And he says, look, the Passover was really close. And this story is moving you to what happened at the cross on the Passover where Jesus, the Lamb of God, died to take away the sin of the world so that death could pass over his people. Look at verse 3. Mary's anointing Jesus' feet. In verse 7, Jesus says this is related to his burial. He's reminding everyone at the dinner party, this is not just an act of making me smell good. This is an act driving us forward to the true reason I came, to die to be buried. Look at verse 4. That's when Judas speaks up. 
Why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So the first open clue you have that Judas cares more about money than Jesus. And that reality is going to drive you forward so that he betrays Jesus just a few days later for a relatively paltry amount of money. Verse 8, look what Jesus says. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you. We could spend time talking about the implications of that statement, but look at the last thing Jesus says. But you do not always have me. Remember Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to be arrested. They're going to kill me. They're going to put me in the ground. And in the middle of this dinner party, he reminds them, I'm not always going to be here like I am right now. Not always going to have me. What a strange thing to say. What a hard thing to hear in the middle of a delightful dinner party. Martha's cooked. Everyone's had their fill. Simon has shared his story and he's there and he's clean and he's whole. Lazarus has told his story. He's alive. He's not dead. Peter is more than likely piped in and told some funny self-deprecating stories and everyone's had a good time. The disciples are gathered together. I imagine they're just sitting around saying, this is fantastic. This is amazing. This is delightful. We're all here together. Simon is whole. Lazarus is alive. This is great. I imagine it was one of those moments in life where you say, I just wish this moment could just last. I wish we didn't have to move to the next day or go to bed at some point. And I wish this would just last forever. And Jesus pipes up in the middle of it and he says, you don't always have me. Jesus did not take on human flesh and tabernacle among us because the dinner parties in Bethany were better than the party in heaven. He wasn't there for dinner party. Jesus didn't walk on this earth simply to heal lepers and raise people like Lazarus from the dead, only for them to die again at some point in time. Jesus did not come simply to perform miracles, simply to, to teach parables. He came to die. And in this story, even as you contrast true discipleship, as you look at Mary and Judas, the whole story is driving you forward to the cross. And it's asking this question of us. For you, has true discipleship started with faith by believing in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. That's the ground level starting point for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not what party you vote for. It's not who you hang out with or don't hang out with. It's not are you a member of this church or that church or this denomination or that denomination. It's have you confessed your sin to God and have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died for you. And if you believe that, you can have life in his name. The reason we have life is that Jesus died. That's my prayer for you this morning. We're going to end praying. Father, we're so thankful for these stories of Jesus' life, for the stories that John wrote down. And Father, I pray for the small group in this room 
And I pray for the large group joining us online. And I pray that we would look at ourselves and think about these these tests, these pictures of discipleship, that we would evaluate ourselves. Are we people who have trusted in Jesus' death on the cross? Are we people who have given our lives to humble worship? Is our perspective in life shaped more by sin, unrepentant sin, or by faith in Jesus? Father, are we the kind of people who stop and slow down to listen to Jesus? Lord, we pray that you would make these things true of us. Father, and we know that the good work that you're doing in our lives is only a result of Jesus dying our death. Because he died, we can have life.